0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about skin cancer with Dr. David LaFell. Dr. LaFell is the David P. Smith Professor of Dermatology and Professor of Surgery, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine.
1: So, David, maybe we can start off by kind of setting the scene of how common skin cancer is, what causes it, and what we can do about it.
2: Well, generally speaking, skin cancer is the most common cancer among humans. We typically think about basal cell cancer, which is the most common cancer in humans, squamous cell cancer, and melanoma.
1: And so how frequent is that? I mean, how many people in the U.S. every year are diagnosed with these cancers? Is this something that everybody should really be concerned about?
2: Well, it's certainly something uh, that people should be concerned about. We don't have as good data for basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer as we do for melanoma, because melanoma is tracked in tumor registries, and there are about 90,000 new cases a year of melanoma. But based on other sources of data, there are at least a million cases of basal cell cancer a year in the United States.
1: You know, some people, you you mentioned that basal cell and squamous cell cancers of the skin are not tracked in tumor registries, many people often don't even think of them as cancers. Um, They tend to be fairly well treated and don't cause a whole lot of trouble. Should people really be thinking about basal cell and squamous cell cancers of the skin like a cancer? I mean, is this something that they need to seek medical attention for? Or is it something that is incidentally noted and pretty much just a bump in the road of life?
2: Well, it's true that when it comes to health, we all have enough to be paranoid about. The reality is that basal cell cancer is a cancer. It causes local destruction of tissue, and because it occurs mainly on the face, it can be, it can be very problematic. Squamous cell cancer of the skin, in particular, is usually diagnosed at a stage where it is easily treated, but unlike basal cell cancer, squamous cell cancer of the skin can not only metastasize, but people can die from it. Hmm.
1: So that's good information to know. So before we start talking a lot about melanoma, I thought maybe we could learn a little bit more about what to, what to look for in terms of basal cell and squamous cell cancers of the skin.
2: Well, probably uh, in my experience, and this is independent from the types of things that you read about on health websites, uh, the single most common feature that people uh, come in with uh, with respect to basal cell cancer is a sore that healed up, went away, and then came back. Uh, From my perspective, that's probably... uh, A cardinal indication of a basal cell cancer and it's tricky because basal cell cancer is so slow growing that it can uh, heal up and then people decide they don't have a problem. Uh, However, it is continuing to grow and there are many different types of basal cell cancers just like there are many different types of Chevrolets or Toyotas. Uh, There are basal cell cancers that can infiltrate deeply into the skin. And when they're near areas such as the eye, it can be very problematic. And then there are basal cell cancers that are are called superficial. And they really confine themselves to the epidermis, which is the top layer of the skin. And uh, viewers can imagine a sheet of paper if they want to understand just how thin the epidermis is. Superficial basal cell cancer is uh, less concerning of course than infiltrative or other forms of basal cell cancer. Now squamous cell cancer typically uh, shows itself as a rough raised area. Uh, People often think that they have a wart or they have some sort of other benign growth. Uh, More advanced squamous cell cancer of the skin can bleed just as basal cell cancer can bleed. Uh, and uh, occasionally there'll be other symptoms that people will attribute to it, but most often uh, it's a spouse or partner that identifies the lesion and says you should have that checked out.
1: So so should people... You know, if you you mentioned that basal cell cancers generally occur on the face, Uh, they generally look like a sore that that may have healed up and comes back. And squamous cell cancers can occur anywhere on the skin, um, generally sun-exposed areas. Is that right?
2: That's right. In fact, in both cases, uh, we actually understand uh, how the cancers are caused, and we know what the agent is that causes a cancer. And that agent is ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Uh, Work that we've done on uh, the patch gene helped us identify uh, the way in which ultraviolet radiation mutates an important gene that can lead to basal cell cancer. Similarly, there's uh, another gene called the p53 gene that can be mutated by the sun, And that can lead to uh, both precancers called actinic keratosis, uh, which in turn can develop into squamous cell cancer.
1: And so when you think about, you know, basal cell cancers being these sores that heal up uh, on the face, squamous cell cancers being raised rough patches that can be anywhere on the skin, I mean... Should all of those lesions mandate a a visit to a dermatologist? I mean, that would be for every pimple, every uh, everything that looks like it might be a little bit of psoriasis or or a raised lesion. Um, it, or or is this something that people just kind of uh, can watch for a bit? I mean, or or does should should all of these really mandate getting somebody to look at them?
2: Well, typically, uh, we recommend a full body skin exam. Uh, once a year for people that are at risk for skin cancer, and that includes people with fair skin, uh, light-colored eyes, light-colored hair. They're the ones that are most at risk because they are most uh, susceptible to damage from ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Uh, You're right. You can't worry about every little thing that comes up. But I've also been struck over the years that uh, people have a sixth sense sooner or later whether it's the sore that keeps coming back or whether it's the rough area that changes in some way uh, people generally know their bodies they may deny that the lesion is a problem and they may not want to go to the doctor that would actually be a normal response but uh, i think people often should trust themselves and if they think something is wrong, it probably is.
1: Yeah. Uh, good good advice for sure. Now, one of the questions I have is we, we've heard a lot on this show about people who are uh, fair-skinned, light uh, eyes, uh, light hair, red hair, being more susceptible to sunlight and more predisposed to getting skin cancers. Does that mean that people who are, you know, darker skinned, uh, Asian people, African-American people, um, really are less at risk? Should those individuals worry about skin cancer at all?
2: Well, it's true that they are less at risk, but they're not at no risk. They don't have a free pass. Uh, We routinely see basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer in individuals with uh, darker skin or who uh, tan regularly. Uh, and, of course, uh, basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer can occur in anyone. So I think that uh, you, going with the odds, it's less likely. But in our uh, program at Yale, we routinely see people uh, with skin cancer uh, who are not the stereotypical type of individual we would expect.
1: Yeah. And I just wanted to clarify one point. You mentioned people who tan. Um, So people who tan, uh, as opposed to people who uh, were born with a darker uh, skin color, um, those people in general would be at higher risk simply because of the increased risk of UV radiation, right?
2: That's right. And we talk about different skin types. Uh, uh, The first skin type, skin type one, are individuals who in the sun burn Uh, the second type are people who burn but then tan and the third type are the people that go out in the sun and because they're more darkly pigmented tan and don't burn Uh, all three types can develop skin cancer
1: Well, you know, so we've we've talked a little bit about basal cell cancer, squamous cell cancer, certainly anybody who has any of these areas that are of concern, listen to your body and go and get that checked out. But I think that when we talk about skin cancers, a lot of us put a lot more of the focus on melanoma, um, because melanoma is more deadly. Is that right?
2: Well, certainly, melanoma in general is more deadly. It's important to remember, though, uh, that when melanoma is diagnosed at its earliest stage, The cure rate is in the 90s, perhaps 95% or greater, and that makes the case for full-body skin exams and making sure that you know your body, you know your moles, and if you see anything changing, that you get it checked out because uh, the danger of melanoma relates directly to its depth, and its depth most often relates to how long it's been there.
1: So let's talk a little bit about how to recognize a melanoma, certainly for people who are darker skin who can still get melanoma but may not be, you know, getting screened once a year like their fair-skinned counterparts, Um, but for anybody, even in between doctor's visits, if you see something, you should say something. So what are the things that we should be looking for when we see something that mandates going and getting it checked out?
2: I think that any change in a mole in size, color, shape, uh, if it becomes itchy, uh, any development of a new mole that has any of those features are things that should set off an alarm and should uh, send you to the doctor to be evaluated. It is true uh, that many people come in because we've done a great job as a society, educating people about the warning signs. It is true that people come to see the dermatologist or the internist or family practice doctor with uh, growths that they are very frightened about because of course they've been on Google and uh, they've seen pictures that they think are similar to what they have, when in fact uh, what they have are more benign lesions. But it's not expected that uh, the listener should be making that distinction. If you have something you're concerned about, get it checked out. And uh, if your partner or spouse or family member has something you're concerned about, speak up.
1: So so great, great information. Now, if one of the things that I think uh, listeners may have some trepidation about, nobody likes to go and see the doctor. I'm the first one to admit that I don't like to go and see the doctor either. Um, and so... Uh I think the point of, you know, seeing something and getting ch- it checked out early, listening to your body is one of the key messages that you had. But part of it might also be a fear of what the doctor is going to say when they see this. Um, so you can either say it's nothing, uh, which is certainly reassuring. But if it is something, tell us about what the steps are that happen at the doctor's office Um, that may help us in terms of making that diagnosis?
2: Well, the only way to properly make a diagnosis of skin cancer is to do a biopsy. And right away, that word instills fear in a lot of people. And uh, the idea of what might be involved can also uh, prevent people from going to see the doctor. But a biopsy is a very simple procedure. Uh, In a skin biopsy, the area is numbed up with lidocaine anesthetic and uh, the lesion is shaved off uh, with a scalpel or a sterile blade and a band-aid is put on the site. Uh, The uh, aftercare is simple and the site typically heals up within a week or two. But it's that biopsy specimen that is sent to a qualified dermatopathologist. In other words, a uh, physician who has special training in skin pathology looks at the specimen under the microscope and can determine not only whether it's a skin cancer or a melanoma, but what kind of melanoma it is. And that's important. You know, we're seeing more and more cases of melanoma in situ. Melanoma in situ instills a great deal of fear in people because they hear the word melanoma. In fact, melanoma in situ is what we call stage zero. It is confined to the epidermis, the top layer of the skin, and because of that, it has no potential to spread in the body. Yet, because we understand the potential dangers of advanced melanoma, people with melanoma in situ, I think, get unnecessarily worried. Uh, The treatment for melanoma in situ is pretty straightforward. It's an office surgery procedure. Um, And I think it's important to make that point because we are seeing more of it. Uh, I will mention a historical note. Previously, melanoma in situ was called by its Latin name lentigo maligna. And like most Latin names, they're indecipherable to the average person. And in that case, that was pretty good because people did get worried. Uh, Now that we refer to it as melanoma in situ, there's a greater degree of anxiety that uh, is probably unnecessary.
1: Right. So people need to put more emphasis on the in situ part than on the melanoma part, in situ meaning essentially a pre-cancer.
2: Yes. I mean, it is, a, it is a malignancy. It is a cancer, but it's confined to the top layer of the skin right. and is non-invasive.
1: Non-invasive. Exactly. Many, just like many other in situ cancers that our listeners may have heard about, whether it's a cervical carcinoma in situ or a breast cancer in situ, all of these don't really have the ability to spread. So when you can catch it at that in situ phase uh, or stage, and um, that's really good. Now, because it is uh, still a malignancy, I want to get into how we treat it, but we'll do that right after we take a short break for a medical minute.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at astrazeneca us.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies, The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. LaFelle. We're talking about skin cancer awareness and surgical treatment options, and right before the break, we were talking about melanoma in situ, this kind of non-invasive melanoma where people get really anxious about melanoma, but it's really the in situ part of the word that needs to be the focus, as this is something that doesn't spread. Now, Dr. Lafelle, you mentioned that this can be easily treated. What exactly is the treatment for uh, a melanoma in situ? Is it just surgery to remove this lesion, or do you add radiation or other therapies to that?
2: The standard treatment for melanoma in situ is surgical excision with plastic surgery uh, to uh, repair the area. The majority of melanoma in situ occur on the face because that's the area that gets the majority of sun exposure. When the lesion is small, uh, the approach is simple. You excise it with a, a margin. And, uh, and suture up uh, the area, do some plastic surgery so the area heals well. We deal with a fair number of relatively large lesions, and in those cases, we don't wanna do the plastic surgery until we're sure that it's all out. So we will excise uh, the melanoma in situ in the office, map it, and send it off, and the patient will go home with a bandage to return a few days later Uh, once we know whether any more has to be taken. Once that process is finished, uh, then the plastic surgery can take place. And in some cases, frankly, depending on where the area is on the face, letting it heal naturally can sometimes give a better cosmetic result than plastic reconstruction.
1: Hmm. So it sounds like that's fairly straightforward. It's pretty much office-based, plus or minus some plastic surgery. What about other skin cancers that occur on the face. We had mentioned basal cell cancers before. Is the treatment for basal cell cancers very similar to melanoma in situ?
2: Uh, It's actually uh, similar, but uh, notably uh, uh, different in that we use a technique called Mohs surgery. And Mohs surgery is named after a general surgeon at the University of Wisconsin who discovered the technique, invented the technique, if you will, Uh, about 50 years ago and that's a method where you remove the skin cancer layer by layer and study the edges and the underneath surface while the patient is waiting and uh, we use that technique extensively Uh, the skin cancer is removed and sometimes we have to go back a second time or a third time but uh, then follow that with plastic reconstruction in the office The reason the Mohs technique is so important is on the face you want to spare as much normal tissue as possible, and you also want the highest cure rate, because if a basal cell cancer or a squamous cell cancer recurs, it becomes more problematic. And the Mohs technique has a cure rate of 98% or more, and it's an efficient approach to treating skin cancer. I did want to mention that we don't use that technique for melanoma in situ because the cells in uh, melanoma in situ are a little trickier to read on on frozen section. But there are places uh, around the country that do that and there are ways to approach it. But for now, we rely on the permanent sections. Now, I should mention that because uh, melanoma in situ uh, can be a challenging uh, lesion surgically if it's large, uh, we can sometimes use a cream that stimulates the immune system of the skin. And uh, it's uh, called Emiquimod. The brand name is Aldara. And uh, it's a remarkable drug. It was originally developed to treat genital warts, mm. and it was discovered that it, didn't, that it worked okay uh, for that indication, but we found more than 20 years ago that it was very effective in treating superficial basal cell cancer, like i mentioned before, and it can be very effective in low-grade melanoma in situ if surgery isn't a possibility or if there are very faint margins left after surgery.
1: So is it ever the case that you could use this cream instead of surgery? Uh, Just not necessarily that it's not surgically resectable, but what if it is a small area and somebody says, you know, I'd rather apply a cream than have a cut on my face?
2: Yes, there are cases where we use the cream as a primary treatment, and that has to do with how active the melanoma cells are in the melanoma in situ.
1: And so is it just as good as surgery or are there certain things that make you say, no, you know what, you really need to have this surgically excised versus, yeah, this is something that uh, the cream is just as good or maybe even better than surgery?
2: Uh, Surgery is definitely the gold standard. The cure rate with the cream isn't anywhere near what it is with surgery. But on balance, there are circumstances where that is the treatment of choice.
1: Okay. So um, so we use this cream. And again, w- for basal cell cancers, it sounds like, just like for melanoma in situ, the modalities of treatment are really geared at local treatment.
2: Correct. And uh, y- you mentioned uh, radiation before. Radiation really doesn't have a role in treating melanoma in situ. There are cases when uh, we encounter Uh, squamous cell cancer uh, along a nerve, for example, uh, or uh, in other circumstances where the cancer is very aggressive, where we may follow up surgical treatment with a course of radiation therapy. Uh, But uh, uh, And probably one of the biggest innovations now, uh, literally as we speak, is uh, the approval of a drug to treat metastatic squamous cell cancer of the skin. Uh, this particular drug is a uh, checkpoint inhibitor, and you've heard that term perhaps in the context of the treatment of melanoma, metastatic melanoma. But there is now a drug that will be available to treat those patients with squamous cell cancer that has spread uh, to other parts of the body.
1: So so that brings up a, a point that I wanted to make as well, which was, we talked about melanoma in situ being the kind of cancer that's not invasive, that doesn't have the ability to spread. And I think that you mentioned that basal cell cancers in general don't spread either, but squamous cell cancers can and do.
2: Yes. Basal cell cancer very rarely spreads. Uh, Squamous cell cancer definitely can, and we see cases of it routinely.
1: So let's talk a little bit more about the management of squamous cell cancers. Uh, Presumably, there's surgery involved for these as well.
2: Yes. For the primary lesion, uh, the primary squamous cell cancer, uh, Mohs surgery is the treatment of choice. However, there are cases uh, that, for example, may be so large that uh, a more uh, general surgical approach is required. And we work uh, in our program collaboratively with the head and neck surgeons, with the radiation therapists, with the plastic surgeons to take a team approach to managing the more complicated cases. And uh, I think that when when we're dealing with Uh, Cases where the squamous cell cancer has spread to the lymph nodes of the neck, for example, our head and neck colleagues take over the care, and they'll do a number of things to to manage that particular case, uh, and it's usually followed up with radiation.
1: And so, uh, and so, what about systemic therapy? So, giving drugs that will get into the bloodstream or or the lymphatic vessels uh, to prevent spread if squamous cell carcinomas have the ability to spread, and some of these, as you mentioned, spread to lymph nodes. How often do we follow this up or do we follow it up with chemotherapy and those kinds of agents?
2: We don't uh, because it's uh, rarely indicated. Uh, And in addition, until the approval of this new drug, uh, there really haven't been any chemotherapy regimens that have been successful in once squamous cell cancer of the skin has spread. They've all been very challenging. Uh, but there's no role for adjuvant chemotherapy in the routine care of squamous cell cancer of the skin.
1: So let's talk a little bit about this new immunotherapy that's coming straight off the presses, uh checkpoint inhibitor for squamous cell cancers. Why is it that this is now playing a role in systemic therapy, whereas systemic therapy never played a role in squamous cell cancers in the past?
2: Well, you know, uh, I think the evolving view is that cancer is as much a disease of the immune system as it is a disease of cells gone wild. And uh, any of these drugs that... uh, goose the immune system or manipulate it in ways to allow the body's natural defenses to fight off the cancer are going to be successful and have proven to be successful. Whether the body develops resistance against it, you know, the immune system developed as a very complex structure through evolution for a reason. And uh, we're likely to see resistance and uh, Various strategies that our own natural immune system will have when we confront a cancer with one of these immune modifiers, but uh, I think that the idea of using this in squamous cell cancer uh, was actually uh, uh, to be expected, and uh, it uh, the clinical trial uh, you know indicates a fair amount of success. In a disease, metastatic squamous cell of the skin, where nothing really worked before.
1: Right. And so let's talk a little bit about you know, when we think about many skin cancers that are not melanoma, melanoma in situ, basal cell cancers, many of us thought, you know, these in general are, are very treatable, almost curable. Um, I think you mentioned that, that you know, it, at least in their early stage, um, you know, we, we get pretty good cure rates. With squamous cell cancer, if it's advanced, um, can you tell us a little bit about what the survival rates were and are now with immunotherapy?
2: Well, I think it's much too early uh, to talk about that. The drug literally uh, was approved by the FDA in the past couple of weeks. And so it's much too early to to talk about that. I think that when drugs uh, get into broader use is when we find out how effective
0: they are. Dr. David LaFell is the David P. Smith Professor of Dermatology and Professor of Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is Yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.